0: Hey Everyone and welcome to the social sport podcast where we explore the connection between endurance sports and social change I'm your host Emma Zimmerman and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag podcast network The guests on this show are climate change activists, mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces and much more Each of them are committed to exploring the connection between endurance sports and social change in their lives Kayla Fenton joins me today. She is a doctoral candidate. She's finishing up her PhD at the University of Oregon, and her research is, in my opinion, some of the coolest research. She primarily focuses on cultural studies of sport and gender equity in sport, but it's a bit more unique than that. She combines a study of sport with literature and media. In this episode, we talk about the representations of women runners in media. We also talk a lot about social media and the way pro athletes represent themselves on social media and how this relates to gender and capitalism and even body fetishization. Kayla blew my mind on multiple occasions with her research and intellect, and I'm sure you'll find it pretty groundbreaking too. Before I launch into today's episode, I want to say keep listening until the end of this episode for an important announcement. Now, Kayla Fenton. Hey, Kayla, welcome to the Social Sport Podcast. I'm so excited to be talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. Can you let us know who you are and where you are right now and what you're passionate about? So, yeah, um, I'm
1: Kayla Fenton. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Oregon. Um, I work in cultural studies of sport using feminist approaches to gender equity to advocate for more accessible and sustainable sporting practices. Um, so I'm in Eugene right now, but I'm from Toronto. So a lot of my work uh, considers both Canadian and American
0: contexts. So Kayla, when I originally heard of your research, I got so excited and jealous too, because you deal with literature and, you know, English mm-hmm. as well as running, which are my two favorite things. And so I immediately wanted to learn more. And I'm just curious how you have found the ability to combine the two, like how do you bring together a study of literature and a study of sport? Yeah, we are kind of kindred spirits that way. Um, But
1: yeah, so I come from an English department, um, but my dissertation falls sort of more readily in the field of cultural studies. Um, So my dissertation isn't looking at, say, solely how women are represented in fiction or poetry or something like that, though I do have a a chapter that's on fiction. But I'm looking broadly at how women runners are represented in various sorts of media, including advertisements, memoir, uh, social media, specifically Instagram. So I'm really doing what we would call discursive analysis, which at the most basic level means looking at how we talk or think about certain concepts uh, in ways that engages them with certain meanings and how those meanings have come about through social and historical contexts.
0: That's so cool and so interesting to me that you're able to pull in so many different types of media like the ability to look at memoir but also look at social media on Instagram is incredible and to pull that into the same work so I want to I mean we will go deeper into that but first of all I want a little bit more of an idea of your background you grew up in Ontario correct yes yeah what comes to mind when you think of growing up in Ontario
1: yeah I mean uh lots of different things sort of if We want to think about how it's aligned with my research. I kind of i i am an early runner. um, Got exposed pretty young by my parents. I think it was probably around eleven when I started going running with my mom. Both my parents run. My dad was big on sort of the road racing scene. My mom was more of like a you know like to go out for a jog. So got into running that way um, and feel really lucky to to have that be kind of a part of my relationship with both my parents. And I was reflecting on that more recently. I read um, a book uh, by Neil Baxter called Running Identity and Meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was doing, it was sort of a, a qualitative and quantitative analysis uh, in a British context of runners. But what he found was that um, almost every single woman who was training and competing seriously as a runner um, at the adult level had really strong parental support and exposure at a really young age. Um, whereas that wasn't necessarily the case for male runners. Uh, they might have come to the sport later, but still gotten really competitive with it. So I, I was thinking about that. as was like, you know, just how much our exposures at a young age um, do impact what we go on to do for the rest of our lives. But
0: yeah, so I ran in university um, and Wait, I have a, I'm intrigued. I want to I stay on that a little bit. I, and we'll go back to Mm -hmm. you, but the parental considering the gender dynamic of that and the parental, why is that? Mm -hmm. Do you know why that is?
1: So, yeah, I think it just sort of depends on, um, kind of, I mean, there's all of the stereotypes that still sort of exist about boys being more competitive than girls or, you know, being more serious about sport where women do it for fitness or to, um, you know, to improve their body or something like that. So all of those kind of gendered elements that we get sort of indoctrinated or embedded within us over the course of growing up. So what he found was that um, early exposure to running in the competitive sense was like a really key uh, sort of indicator of whether someone would continue on running competitively, whereas not necessarily for men. Um, but also because we don't generally, even when we put like our kids in sport, right. We often assume that the like little boys are going to want to be really competitive and really rough and tumble and get really intense about it. And we think that little girls are, you know, just there to have fun or something like that. So thinking about how the longevity of sort of those messages continue on, but yeah, it was a really great text. I reviewed it for, um, the sport literature association. Um, if people want to check it out.
0: So cool. Yeah. I'll definitely link that in the show notes. And it's very interesting to be able to reflect on that and how that dynamic appeared in your Mm -hmm. own life and to think like, oh, maybe I'm here. I mean, not only your love for sport and running, but also your career because you had that parental Mm -hmm. support at a young age. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it is mirrored
1: by my parents' participation in the sport as well. My dad Mm -hmm. came to the sport at a later age but got quite competitive with it, um, from a training and, and racing context. My mom also came to the sport at a later age, but it's very much been sort of a fitness and leisure activity for her. Um, and not because she's not a very capable runner, she could totally train for a race, uh, if she wanted to, but yeah, I see those sort of gender dynamics reflected in them. Um, but not so much reflected in me. And I, I get that in part because I was exposed to it at a young age.
0: Totally. So how about your passions for literature and media? Where do they stem from? So um yeah, I've I've
1: always been like a nerd. Uh <laughs> I've always loved to read and and write. And I think I had the, the childhood dream of um, being an author that many of us do. I was really fortunate to have a high school English teacher um, who also happened to be my cross-country coach. So again, it was kind of a convergence of those two worlds, but, um, he, I feel really lucky he taught literature. Like it mattered, you know, that it was positioned in cultural context and that it was a space for mm-hmm. ideology and representation. And it counteracted a lot of that, like, well, what are you going to do with an English degree, um, type of discourse that like, you know, s- students get bombarded with, uh, these days of like, mm-hmm. Oh, there's no jobs that you can do with that. So I kind of continued on. I ended up majoring in English. I wrote for my university newspaper, um, thought I was going to go to the journalism route. I ended up having internships with a couple of running magazines in Canada. Um, I run magazine and then Canadian running magazine. And I now have an affiliation with um, VXC, which is an online publication. But I mean, ultimately for me, it came down to really love universities. I really love academic settings, campus life. I like teaching. Um, so I knew that I really wanted to to be hopefully fingers crossed on a campus for the rest of my life. But yeah, so my dissertation is kind of a way of marrying the, those t- two things together so that I can still be on university campus, but but engage with all of those topics.
0: Yeah, no, I totally relate to that, wanting to hide from the real world and stay a student for <laughs> as long as possible. Yep. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So many of my
0: friends were like, I got to get out of here. I like, I want to leave. And I'm like, I want to be here forever. Yeah. Yeah, It's amazing. You can, yeah, forget about the real world in a lot of ways. And also, you know, critique it in everything that you do. But Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what Mm -hmm. academia is, being way too into the real world and also very removed from it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what then brought you to Oregon? Cause it seems like the perfect place, right. To be doing the research that you're doing. I mean, you're in track town uh, and also just the incredible yeah. English department and all that. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about and that. So I have, I ended up here
1: sort of by chance, um, sort of not by chance. I think uh, it's um, one of those things where it kind of just bait had my, uh, had my best interests <laughs> aligned, but so I wasn't planning on pursuing a um, PhD that was focused on sport when I ever, um, initially moved to Eugene. I thought that I was going to be pursuing literature and the environment. I was really interested in how we could use speculative fiction in climate change education. Mm. And I thought that's what I would likely do my dissertation on. And in part, because, uh, as I, as I mentioned maybe before, I, I had pretty a pretty serious injury while I was in university, and I was out of running for um, two or three years, um, and took a really long time before I could run with any sort of serious training again. Uh, that's only really been within the past couple of years, um, so I was really hesitant to make. Uh, running a part of my or sport a part of my academic identity it already felt like oh okay this was maybe too big a part of my my regular identity and I got that taken away and it, it was pretty painful so I was I was kind of trying to keep those two worlds separate a little bit and have a space that maybe didn't depend on whether or not I was able to run and I, I did a lot of sort of thinking and therapy going through that. Um, and now I think I'm a little bit more able to say, okay, um, I actually think that's a really unique perspective that I bring to sport is that understanding that the way that we position sports, um, these days, a lot of the time it is that like, you know, all in, you know, give it everything you have 110% or it's nothing at all. And we demand that people, you know, become solely athletes rather rather than just people who happen to also participate in sport, even if that's their career path, you know, mm-hmm. they're not just athletes. And so now I think that that that's actually a really useful framing that I bring to sport is that I am hesitant about that kind of culture that tells people that, you know, this is the only thing that matters, or this is the only thing that they are. But yeah, so then I was sort of, ready to go through, we have comprehensive exams, and then we start our dissertations. Um, And so I was at that stage, and I was feeling really um, uninspired with what I thought I was going to be doing, and just kind of had this bug in my ear about, like, maybe I could do something with running and with literature and with media. Um, And that's how this, this came about was when I was kind of able to be like, okay, this doesn't mean that you're only a running person, it means that it's one aspect of your academic identity, as well as your personal identity. And I think um, right now, the plan for my second book project will be looking at discourse of pregnancy in elite athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really excited about that, too. That's kind of an avenue that my dissertation has opened up to me that I hadn't thought I had an interest in at all. And I'm sure we'll get to that when we kind of talk about the different chapters, but um, now that's something that I'm really excited about um, as well. So, and then yeah, obviously, Tracktown USA is probably
0: the best place to do that dissertation. So it ended up working out perfectly. So, first of all, I want to say that as someone who has had a ton of running injuries and tons of identity mm-hmm. crises around athleticism and academics, I really appreciate mm-hmm. the perspective that you bring, and I'm sure mm-hmm. that a lot of people do. But aside from that, I wonder how that falls into your research or whether that, I mean, you talked a little bit about how it helps if your research, but you're looking specifically about the way that women athletes are portrayed. And I think that Mm -hmm. there is this kind of tension right now in this portrayal of that all in mentality Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. trying to brand athletes as more than a runner. And Mm -hmm. I'm never quite sure what is just branding and what is Mm An actual trend, you know, so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. wondering how your experience with that topic has maybe driven or informed how you view that branding of athletes.
1: Yeah. And it's really interesting. There have been some um, sports psychology researchers that have done some great work on this um, and the idea of what uh, they term the performance narrative, which is that very, you know, it's that story that we all know that we're talking about, right? That you go all in on your sport, you overcome obstacles as they come. And, you know, through sheer determination and hard work, you end up on the podium, you win the game. Um, you know, it's, it's very parallel to kind of the myth of the American dream, a lot of the mythology of the United States, in particular, that sort of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps sort of thing. And so actually, I, I have an article forthcoming, and it's in more of it's in a an literary focused journal, but it's really looking at kind of the ways that literature talks about narrative and the way that sports psychology talks about narrative and whether actually um, something like fiction can be an opportunity to explore alternatives to this sort of very set performance narrative that is ultimately detrimental to athlete mental health. I mean, Mm -hmm. the that's what most of the sports psychology research is focused on is that you get these athletes then either they get injured or when they're they just hit their regular retirement stage and all of a sudden it's this devastating like, I don't know who I am now because I don't have this thing that I let dictate every single aspect of my life. Or, you know, I didn't foster other relationships other than with um, teammates or my coach or something like that. And now I, now I don't have anything and I don't know who I am. So, yeah, that's sort of something that's been actually identified as, as sort of yeah. this, uh, structure of story that we all also, that's what we think is going to happen when we're kids, right? Like we start picking up our sport and it's like, Oh, I'm going to be, you know, like the next Wayne Gretzky, I'm going to be the next, you know, Sholene Flanagan. Mm. Um, all I have to do is work really hard. Um, and yeah, I'm not saying it's a hard work is a bad thing or anything like that, but we do need to be a little bit more prepared that sometimes we can go absolutely all in on something and give it everything. And it doesn't work out. That is like, you know, kind of the part of sport that nobody likes to talk about. Um, Perdita Felicien, who's um, she's a Canadian uh, track and field athlete. She's a hurdler. Um, she just had a memoir come out that I read as well. And I, really appreciated she had a quote that was right along those lines sort of you know you can give absolutely everything to a sport and sometimes it doesn't it doesn't work out and in her context she she fell in the olympic finals when she was Mm -hmm. the gold medal favorite you cannot argue that she it was just a lack of hard work or that if she just believed in herself a little bit more it would have worked out it was just a super unfortunate thing that happened and then she trained for the next olympics which in that sort of performance narrative uh, structure we would expect to be her big moment that she overcomes what happened at the previous ones she ends up on the podium and uh she ended up i think breaking a couple bones in her <sighs> feet because someone placed the hurdles on the wrong marks during a practice so just a complete and utter fluke accident uh you know like completely out of her control right which totally goes against that performance narrative where we like to believe that everything is within our control. So yeah, I got a little bit off of the branding side again, no, there too. It. but that's sort of from this like psychology perspective, this is this narrative that we tell ourselves as a society about sports. And then um, we also see it come up. Yeah. In, we, we live in a brand culture nowadays um, which my thinking about this has been really influenced by, um, a scholar called Sarah Benay Weiser, basically that we structure our relationships, including in places that we think of as very unbranded spaces, you know, our personal life, our spirituality, our sport, um, have now increasingly become sort of branded spaces where we mediate our representation through how we want others to perceive us, um, and so for me and my, in my what dissertation, a terrifying this comes
0: terrifying up, thought, but so true. I know, I know. And,
1: and particularly I mean, social media has, has heightened this so, 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 so much. Um, and I mean, I, I don't think you can be a professional athlete or maybe you can, if you're in like the NBA or NFL or NHL, you can be a professional athlete without social media, but and we're talking about running, which is a sport that is inherently tied to individual sponsorship deals. I don't think you can be an athlete without um, social media these days. I have a friend who's a pro runner, and I know that when she got sponsored, one of the clauses was that she had to set up Instagram and Twitter accounts, despite the fact that she didn't mm. have them and didn't have any interest in having them at that time. Um, and so my third chapter looks at how women runners self represent over. Um, Instagram I was looking at the Canadian and American Olympic teams um, at distances 1500 meters and over headed into the Olympics and that was what I found it was very much an engagement um, in self-branding and almost across the board it was this okay I am a a powerful athlete but also let me make sure I look really good in all of my photos Um, so and definitely like Targeting a heterosexual audience. Um, Let me make sure that I've got my shirt off in a lot of these photos. A lot of, um, there's this term called body capital, the way that we, you know, certain bodies in our society are considered as more valuable or having more capital to them, be it social capital or in this case, financial capital. So a lot of shirtless photos, photos, a lot of, you know, having the time of my life really upbeat. Nothing's ever going wrong. Um, injuries aren't really posted about bad worker workouts aren't really posted about. It's really look at me. I'm doing my thing. It's going great. And I'm wearing Nike, um, or, and I'm wearing mm. new balance.
0: Um, so yes. a super, super branded space. This is so interesting. I know you said a chapter of, of your dissertation, I believe mm-hmm. you're doing quite a bit of work on yeah. social media and athletics and, mm-hmm. There's so many negative parts of it that you're alluding to. Mm-hmm. Are there any opportunities mm-hmm. that you see social media presenting for athletes, or do you see it as mostly this negative space? Mm-hmm. I don't see it as an
1: inherently negative space. I see it, um, and I this is, again, a, a term stolen from Sarah Benet wiser as sort of an ambivalent space um, where it's not inherently negative, but it's not inherently positive. I certainly think that if athletes feel pressure to do it a certain way, then obviously it's um more of a negative. And I do think, you know, there's certainly such a gendered element to it where there are different expectations put on women than there are on men. Um, the other part of me, the very like realist um, you know, is like, okay, but if they get to make money, um, you know, I'm all for athletes being able to make a little livable wage, uh, the, the reality is that runners don't make that much money. Um, and certainly compared to other big sort of league sports. And so like, who am I to judge for them, you know, taking advantage of their athletic career to leverage some other opportunities, but then it becomes concerning to me if the reason that they're getting those opportunities is not necessarily because of their running talent, but more because, they look a certain way, or um, they're perceived as having a you know certain brand online, um, and that's kind of again, it's become such a neoliberal commercialized space where we don't think of it as just like oh, we're just seeing so and so's live life now. It's like that has you know capitalism entrenched
0: within it. So two things you said are incredibly interesting to me: the fact that. We see more of a social media presence, or you know, maybe I am using my own biases here, but I think there is more of a social media mm-hmm. presence, at least in the running world, of women athletes. And at the same mm-hmm. time, social media has become important for athletes' financial stability. So does that mean that there mm-hmm. are different financial incentives for men versus women when it comes to social media? Or is social media more important for women's financial stability in the athletic world? I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. about that relationship. Mm -hmm.
1: It would be, I mean, I wish that a lot of these contracts were open for public perusal, because unfortunately, a lot of the time, we just don't know how these are written. I mean, certainly sponsorship, um, like packages and contracts nowadays would have rules about, okay, we want you to post this many times. Um, you know, you have to post these things when we tell you, I mean, it's very obvious sometimes when like Nike rolls something out and like every single one of their Mm apps makes the same post or something. But a lot of the time, actually, that's not how brands will want it to work. They'll want their products integrated in a really, um, subtle way where it's not like, you know, Oh, I'm tagging new balance and I'm talking about this new model of shoe. It's just me living my best life, but I happen to be wearing a new balance sports bra. Oh, look, I was um, wearing a new balance sports bra. <laughs> look at that. Yeah, that just happened to be by chance. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of whether it's more important for women or for men, I mean, I think that nowadays we're in a weird space where your social media following can actually be something that you have to have before getting sponsored and okay. can impact the sponsorship deal that you're offered, um, which is kind of a scary world that, you know, a lot of collegiate or young athletes are headed into nowadays. Um, particularly, yeah, now we've got the NCAA rules around name and likeness yeah. changing. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on, um, athletes to sort of, brand themselves and make themselves, you know, appealing to, you know, the big shoe companies of the world and running's case. So I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that someone's asking those athletes, um, how they want to use their social media. And if that feels like it's something that is important to them as well, rather, whether this is just sort of an unquestioning, like, oh yeah, like try and get as many followers as possible sort of thing so that you can make more money. Um, and with the, with the men versus women, I think in some respects they, and I talk about this in my third chapter for women's running, it overlaps more with a women's lifestyle, you know, fit fluencer fitness, mm. Instagram type of sphere. Um, in part because, um, the sort of body type that we tend to see with elite women runners is extremely fetishized in our broader society in a way that, you know, the body type that we tend to see with elite male runners is not generally fetishized by the the broader population um, in quite the same way. So I think there's a bit more of an overlap in the way that um, those women are sometimes able to leverage their space beyond a running specific audience that might be more catering to women than to men. Um, that is an argument that I'm putting forward in that chapter. There's hugely problematic things about that as well. Um, of course, but I do think that's part of the reason that we see these women runners, you know, really hitting the social media in these very gendered, very particularly branded types of ways.
0: Wow, yeah, the idea of that fetishization of the idealized or stereotypical women runner's body. We can go off in so yeah. many tangents on that. I mean, it overlaps. I think yeah. with eating I mean, disorder. Runner's body, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: The yeah, runner's I, body I
1: mean, as, and, and I would love to, you know, I'm hopefully going to write about this someday, but that in and of itself as a discursive contact, uh, is, is just so, it's so difficult because I mean we're even doing it now, right? We're trying not to say that there is one quote unquote runner's body or one way that women who run their bodies should look, but even in the way that we're kind of dancing around it, we're sort of suggesting that there is. And I know mm-hmm. that Lindsay Krause has done some interesting work with this as well in some of her series for the New York Times. Um, and I, I just remember one of her articles where she's talking to Ali Kiefer, who is who is very sort of vocal about. Body positivity, but even the way that Ali Kiefer is kind of framing her own body as like an othered or abnormal runner's body, then in itself, you know, suggests that her body is different than the way that the normal, quote unquote, normal runner's body should look. But so yeah, this all yeah. to say it's a fraught, fraught term, um, obviously, that is really tied up, like you said, in disordered eating culture. And obviously, this broader
0: non-performance related fetishization of of thinness in our, in our Western culture. Yeah. And I should just say, I'll cite one person who's done some great work on this in the running world is uh, Heather mm-hmm. Kaplan, who was also a guest on social sport a while back, mm-hmm. but she's talked pretty openly about this idea of what we call body positivity in the runner space mm-hmm. and how it's often body positivity is used by smaller bodied women when mm-hmm. cellulite is showing or, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, is that really body positivity, but mm-hmm. let's go back to your social media because I still have so many different yeah. questions about this because I mean, you use the word subtle way to talk about mm-hmm. how marketing works in athlete social media, you know, the subtle new balance sports bra. I think authenticity mm-hmm. is a word that comes to mind for me. There's a push for athletes to be authentic in this media for it not to look mm-hmm. like it's an ad to, you know, relate mm-hmm. to more fans, but also one could argue that social media is, I mean, and maybe especially in sports and marketing is inherently inauthentic. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. whether you have any thoughts on how sports fans, how we should navigate that and decide what is authentic? What is just branding? Can they both exist together? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, office is authenticity. Like, what does what does it even really mean in this sort of context? Nothing. And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Sarah Banet-Weiser, I think she says we've we've transformed from an authentic culture to a culture that's focused on the branding of authenticity. Um, <laughs> so we yeah focused on branding ourselves as someone who is authentic, um, and that's something that I I wrote about. A little bit as well in an article I did um, that focused on Hayward Field, where it went from you know the organic concept of Hayward magic to the mobilization of that concept to brand the new site as authentic. Um, But I think for, for social media these days, yeah, there's this pressure online where you have to be successful. You have to be pretty, you have to be powerful, you have to be confident, um, but you also have to be authentic and you have to be transparent and you have to let people in on, you know, your life in an intimate way. And that puts women in particular in a really difficult spot um, in you know, okay, if I'm being authentic, like things aren't always great and I don't always look awesome and I'm not always in a sports bra. Um, but then also if I'm, you know, all, none of us are posting like, oh, I'm having a crappy day. I have a huge zit on my nose and I'm still in my sweats. Like nobody puts that on Instagram. Um, but in a more serious vein, I think what really stood out to me more recently, there were two examples, um, where the word authenticity came up and I was like, Oh, this is super fascinating. Um, Colleen Quigley pulling out of the U S Olympic trials due to injury and made a video message talking about how she always really tries to be authentic on her Instagram. Um, but then admitting that, you know, she's been dealing with this injury for months and hadn't been posting about it and had been posting as though things were going great. And she was ready for the trials. Um, and, also, Ali Ostrander made a video where she um, was talking about being admitted into an eating disorder uh, rehab, sort of, I don't know if it is uh, an actual residency or something like that. Or I think if, it was um, like um, partial hospitalization was the
0: term she used.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And she as well was sort of talking about how, you know, she was struggling with, you know, quote unquote, being so inauthentic and acting like, things were okay on her social media. Um, and you know, in both of these instances, it's like these athletes are, this is their like private medical information, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, what right do, do we as random people who follow them have to that? Um, but then also I understand why people feel a bit, um, misled where, you know, it's like, okay, well, I was following you and I was supporting you and I was looking forward to seeing you at this race. And then It turned out the whole time, you know, you were struggling with this injury, but you were posting, like you were training fine. Like I understand why people are sort of like, whoa, that's kind of a weird disconnect as well. And I think those examples just really highlight that, that pressure that women feel to be authentic, but also to be like the person that has it all together and who's, you know, crushing their workouts and doing really well and is super positive. um, And it just puts them in this really difficult space. And then both of these videos are almost like confessional in the way that these women are clearly like, feel guilty about what they've done. And I'm just like, oh, man, this is this really complicated uh, landscape that we've landed ourselves in Mm -hmm. where, you know, and I don't think either of these women have anyone you know, they're, they're running their social media themselves. Um, it's like, okay, h- how, how should they have handled this in an ideal world? I don't know that they could have done much differently.
0: We put such a premium on like, quote vulnerability and quote authenticity. Mm-hmm. Now it's incredible to mm-hmm. take a step back and think about when a woman such as an athlete has this platform, we kind of expect them to show us mm-hmm. their entire lives in a way we wouldn't expect them of anyone else, mm-hmm. but also expect them to fit into this box of what we want their lives to look like. It's really- Exactly. Yeah. It's wild to take a step back from that. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's really what that third
1: chapter of mine is, yeah. is diving into where these athletes feel like they have to have branded themselves as, yeah, a pretty powerful, um, confident, got-her-shit-together runner. Um, but, and she's also supposed to be authentic and vulnerable, like you said, but then of course, like, you know, your sponsor doesn't actually want you going on and talking about how, you know, you're having a crappy training block and you're kind
0: of hating the sport. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just basically almost an impossible situation these days. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I cannot wait to read more of this research (laughs) and when it's out, I really cannot wait, Kayla but we've, you know, we've done gone down this one road of your research, Mm -hmm. which is really just an aspect. And I want to give Mm -hmm. listeners a better idea of kind of more broadly your research. I know your dissertation Mm -hmm. is post-feminism and the extra mile looks at Mm -hmm. representations of women distance runners to explore contemporary discourse and gendered athletic identity. Mm -hmm. I want to break this apart a little bit more. So some people might not know what Mm -hmm. we're referring to when you say post-feminism. So what does that mean to you? Yeah. So there's a lot of different terminology floating around out
1: there. Post-feminism, neoliberal feminism, popular feminism. They're all generally speaking to the same kinds of ideas. This is the rise in the idea that sort of general gender equity has been achieved. We now celebrate girl power. We, you know, celebrate girl bosses. We have lean in women. There's a lot of rhetoric around empowerment and choice. Um, But what we actually see is that all of this is really intrinsically tied with neoliberalism in that the solutions to problems become located within individual women themselves rather than in systems. So like this idea that it's your responsibility to be confident enough to negotiate your salary up as women, for example, rather than focusing on the fact that the starting salary offer for men and women with the same qualifications should just be the same in and of Mm. itself And popular feminism emerges within the context of this post-feminist sensibility. So it recognizes that there is the continued existence of gender inequality, but it's not really invested in disrupting either the neoliberal connection or sort of the mainstream politics that are attached to that, but it's rather entrenched in sort of ideas of individualism and entrepreneurialism as being the solutions to those problems. So I'm looking at women runners in like a post-feminist world that we live in, um, and sort of looking at okay, how are we talking about athletic identity and opportunities um, in this post-feminist realm that has risen in Extricably is inextricably linked to the neoliberalization of sporting practice, and particularly with running, because we're tied solely to sort of a sponsorship model for um, career athletics. It is a super, super neoliberalized space. So I'm looking um, from the 1970s to present. So if there's any super running nerds out there, it's kind of the running boom of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, get the passage of Title IX. First women's marathon is 1984, which is really, really not that long ago. <laughs> and then we see sort of the explosion of women's road race and participation at sort of the general population level around 2000. Um, and then we have in more recent, sort of like more or less five, six years seen, um a real elevation in kind of the level of competition of elite women's running. So thinking about sort of these turning point wins by like, Shalene Flanagan at the New York City Marathon in 2017, Des Linden, at Boston 2018, where, sort of in the American context that I'm talking about right now, sort of the women almost start to outshine the men in terms of the distance mm-hmm. running sphere. The 2020 Olympic marathon trials for the US yeah. had approximately double the number of women qualify than men. So we're at this really, really interesting stage in women's running, I think, at at all levels. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the
0: temporal context that my research is located in. Kale, so you're asking such huge questions and looking at a mm-hmm. time period that's short, but also so big because yeah. so much has happened for the sport, so especially for changed. women in the mm-hmm. sport. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, cause I'm, I'm like overwhelmed almost by <laughs> in a good way. Like I'm good overwhelmed yeah. hearing you yeah. talk about this. I'm curious about your whole process. Cause you're pulling from so many different types of literature and media and asking such big questions mm-hmm. when there's so much material I'm assuming in this time period. So just tell me a little bit more about like, how the process of your research looks.
1: Yeah, so I have basically four chapters, uh, one that deals with fiction, one that deals with memoir, one that deals with advertisement, and one that deals with social media that we've kind of talked about um, more extensively. And so the fiction chapter, um, I'm dealing with uh, five different short stories plus one novel, um, and looking at, and that's from sort of the 1970s to present. There's a really, really rich history of fiction of men's running um, that just like doesn't exist for women. So uh, what I'm looking at is okay, what are these few texts that are out there? What are they doing? How are they representing? running. um, That's the chapter that I'm working on right now. And that was really the impetus for the project of the whole. Obviously that one is the closest to my home department um, and my sort of original literary aspirations, but it also comes out of that is what I was looking for as a book nerd, as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. I, or a high schooler, I read once a runner, I read running with the Buffaloes. I read what I talk about when I talk about running George Sheehan, like I ran or I read everything and there were no women. It was like, there's nothing out here that has a female protagonist that I could find when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. So part of the, that the impetus for the project was tracing a history of women's running literature that really focuses on um, how women engage with the sport. And again, kind of like what we were talking about before, a lot of the, Male um, protagonists of literature follow this very stereotypical sport performance narrative Mm -hmm. with the big race. And I mean, you just have to read Once a Runner if you want to understand what the performance narrative is. So my argument is basically that that's not necessarily how women have engaged with um, running in literature throughout kind of the 1970s to present.
0: Okay. So I have never fully put two and two together or named this, but hearing you Mm -hmm. talk about it, it's so clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there is no fiction that has kind of Mm -hmm. defined quote unquote women's running. Mm -hmm. And you think about those Mm -hmm. books like Once a Runner. And in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. they have really created this ethos that we hold around running of this kind of yeah. like quirky, but also really intense, that marriage of quirky and intense, that's like uniquely the yeah. track and field world. And it's kind of been created by this yeah. male focused literature that's intriguing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah. And I know and, you're, you're nodding around like, "Yep, <laughs> that's my research, yeah. but, but you well, just blow my and- mind because I've never put two of together. <laughs> and actually
1: the, um, this really, this is such a random niche story, but when I was at Canadian Running, um, I had a conversation with my boss there who, you know, really mentored me, really took me under his wing. And we were talking about Once a Runner as being sort of the book of, you know, of running culture. It's kind of that text that, everyone has read, everybody talks about, um, particularly for young men is like often really inspirational and like pivotal to their uh, sort of approach to running as sport. And, And I read it and I was just like, man, there's only like one woman in it. And they meet because she's running at a track and he comes over to correct her form. And then they end up dating. And I was just like, that's, that's how she, like, that is their neat cute is he's like, you know, you're kind of doing that wrong. She also has a physical disability. That is the reason that she runs that way, but he still comes over to sort of say like, you should really try and do this. Um, and she's really figured as this distraction from his running sort of this thing that he has to sacrifice and give up this relationship in order to put himself entirely into the running world so I was talking to my boss about this and he was like, yeah, like now that you're saying that I like, I can see it, but it's not, it's not how I read it. And I was like, yeah, cause that's because I'm approaching it as a woman runner. And I'm, I'm looking for the women in these stories and and you're not. Um, and so he had me write a review. Um, it was meant to be a little bit inciting the, the people, uh, cause we titled it, uh, why I hate once a runner. So it got a lot of, um traction this way. For the record, I don't actually hate Once A Runner. Um, I think that many things about the book are enjoyable. It's one of my partner's very favorite books. But uh, the author of the of Once A Runner, John L. Parker, actually um, left a comment on the Canadian Running article um, that said, if you didn't like it that much, you shouldn't have read it. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, also, 19 at this point, maybe 18. Um, like, it was sort of this weird, like, oh, wow, I feel a bit like that kind of hurt. Um, and then um, Roger Robinson, who is an English professor, um, and it has written a book like literally called Running in Literature. Um, and in a lot of ways, I see that first chapter of my dissertation is going to be almost an expansion of his work with a focus on women, um, you know, I don't think it's his fault that there weren't that many women represented in that text, but, um, it's something that I think we can do a little bit better about highlighting, but he actually emailed, um, the magazine afterwards and said, you know, I really enjoyed, uh, your review. I think that you pointed out a lot of really important things about this work. Um, and he really sort of validated that, like, yeah, you're absolutely right to be taking note of these things. Um, and this was like years and years and years before I would then decide ultimately that this was going to be the topic of my dissertation. But I do kind of think back now as like, wow, it was actually an English professor who is also a, a very high level runner who's married to Catherine Switzer, um, well, who ended up also validating those feelings. So yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the fiction area of my research
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. I hope that so many <laughs> young women runners are listening to this because it's it's so funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are told, like, I can think about the ma- amount of times I, growing up as a young woman and a runner, was told, mm-hmm. like, you have to read once a runner. It's yeah. the running book. And I remember mm-hmm. reading it and thinking, like, eh, this isn't really for me. Like, it's weird. Yeah. I don't really know. I'm not really being able to put my finger on it as a mm-hmm. kid. So it's so funny. I want to pull... Mm-hmm women growing up in that world. And I'm, I just love hearing about how, how you I'll have to find that article as well, because it's so relatable and just so interesting. (laughs) And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I talk about a few other things. I think there's um, really
1: a glorification of overtraining that happens in that novel as well. That actually is, Mm. uh, is pretty dangerous when people try to imitate and completely unrealistic for what, most pro athletes or pro runners are doing these days. But if if there are young women runners who like to read out there listening, I would really highly recommend if you're looking for a novel, um, Late Air by Jacqueline Gilbert. It is the, the one novel that's going to appear um, in, uh, in the chapter of my dissertation. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible book. There are two protagonists, the male coach of the Yale cross country women's cross country team. um, And also his wife who is, um, you know, not affiliated with the Yale cross country team, but it really, it tells their uh, the story through both of their perspectives, which you might be like, Oh, okay. How is it a women's running book um, if it's told through the perspective of a male coach, but it's really about um, sort of him needing to navigate his relationships with his young women athletes um, and the way that he sort of comes to realize more of their experience. And yeah, I don't want to give it too much away, but it does touch on a lot of those sort of um, gender power dynamic issues, also disordered eating culture in collegiate running, um, that pressure to be super competitive in a hyper-masculine way and how it does or does not translate into women's sport. So it's, uh, it's an absolutely amazing work. Um, and, and Gilbert was, she did compete for for Yale, I believe, um, at the collegiate level. So it's it is written by a woman runner who has competed.
0: Cool. I haven't read that, so I'll have to check it out. We've talked a little bit about the ways in which women are or are not uh, represented in running related mm-hmm. media. You and I have talked a little bit off air about the ways in which race factors into these representations. So could you tell us a little bit more about that and how that's come up in your research?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, there is no um, more simple way to say this than like running distance running in the United States and Canada is like a super super white space um and it has been since like the very beginning um particularly with women's running when it kind of started in the 1970s to become this sort of like um liberated athletic femininity space and so and we talked a little bit as well about the origins of jogging more generally in Oregon um and the the racial sort of dynamics of that of it also being a white upper middle class space and i really recommend uh, natalia melman petrizelas um new york times article on on that if uh, if anyone's yeah. interested but yeah it's it's super problematic and it needs to change and i think that um you know the fact that sally kipiego and alafine chiamuk are the first Black women on the U.S. Olympic marathon team ever is a statement in and of itself Mm -hmm. of how this has been a space that has been way, way, way too white for way too long. Um, And and in my own work, I think it's part of the reason we haven't really talked about the chapter that focuses on the Nike Dream Crazy campaign too much yet, Mm -hmm. but why it's so important the activist work that people like Alicia Montano and Allison Felix are doing, with their approach to pregnancy and women's, um, women's running women's athletics more broadly, and that they're bringing, okay, this isn't just a women's issue. This is also an intersectional issue that impacts us in specific ways as black women who are at increased risk during, um, during our maternal stage or pregnancy stage. So it's something that I would like to see counteracted by particularly in coaching positions, more women of color um, as well as, you know, LGBTQ um, and disabled people in coaching positions, that doesn't fix everything, but it is somewhere to start where you need to have those people who are making those spaces safer and more accessible for other people. Um, and we need to think about, yeah, how recruitment works in, at the collegiate level and which athletes are being really sought after. And I know that you talked with um, uh, Risa, you started, um on the podcast previously about, yeah, we we think that Title IX sort of like, quote unquote, fixed uh, women's collegiate sport, but Title IX has fixed way more things for, you know, white upper middle class girls than it has for girls of color who still face all of these structural barriers to participating in sport, let alone at the collegiate level. And I think that's why post-feminist rhetoric and discourse in particular is so violent to any community that has been marginalized and that it says all you have to do is work hard and try hard um, and lean in and you're going to be successful, which erases all of those barriers to access that those communities face in their everyday lives. So that's part of why I think that this Rejection of that type of discourse is so important to expanding um, sort of what we think of as athletic identity. And it's something that I've struggled with a little bit in my own dissertation because, you know, the athletes in saying that I'm going to survey um, the Canadian and American Olympic teams headed into Tokyo, that became an overwhelmingly white space. Hmm. In saying that I'm going to study the women who runners who have had their memoirs published that became an overwhelmingly white space. So it's like, okay, am I perpetuating part of this problem by focusing on these texts, which because of the racist society we live in have prioritized whiteness. So we need to be pointing out those absences every single time we can and be trying to make sure that we are looking forward to, okay, like whose work can we promote? Whose work can we find? Whose work can we... because there are these women out there doing that. They're just not getting the same sort of attention.
0: I like what you said about pointing out those absences because I think it's a reminder for everyone that a history of erasure shouldn't be Mm -hmm. any reasoning for continued erasure or for perpetuation of erasure. Exactly, exactly. So, oh man, there are just so many pieces of your research that I want to ask questions about. And I'm like, we're running out of time. So I'll (laughs) link, I'll link, more of your research in show notes. I mean, there's a whole a uh, piece of your research on increased globalization of sports and how that connects mm-hmm. to Hayward Field, and and mm-hmm. I want people to read that as well. But I do have a few more personal questions going beyond your research. Yeah. I know that you you run under Coach Tom Heinen. He coached at the University of Oregon women's cross country and track mm-hmm. uh, for I believe it was 28 mm-hmm. years, and he is a pretty esteemed coach mm-hmm. for anyone who doesn't know. He had a large role in developing women's athletics at Oregon. So I'm just curious what it's like training now under such a legend because you're on the club team, correct?
1: Yeah. So I run with the UO running club. Um, and honestly, the reason that I still uh, go, cause I'm, I'm old now, so I'm kind of <laughs> old to be running with uh with the freshmen, but um, is Tom. He is uh, just one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. And yeah, such a force for gender equity in running um you know putting his foot down and saying that he would not have his women compete at separate meets than um, the men's team and just taking every opportunity to point out when their the system was completely unfair um and just did a lot to cultivate women's running at the University of Oregon and you know if you're listening, you probably don't know his name the same way that you know Bill Bowerman or Bill Dellinger or Bill Hayward um, or even Vin Linana. And part of the reason you don't know Tom Heinonen is because he coached the women's team. Um, and that was mm-hmm. you know generally seen as the lesser coaching position. Um, I remember I was running with him, he was biking beside me, and he was telling me a story about having a couple of Olympic male Olympic hopeful runners approaching him to, to ask him to coach them and him saying like, no, sorry, I only coach women. And I was like, wow, Tom, like in the eighties, like, can you like that statement in the eighties? I was like, you are so at the forefront of like saying that, no, this is absolutely an important competitive you know, I want to dedicate my life to this space and I don't view it as lesser than at all. So I I really love Tom. He's like just a fountain of, uh, stories, but I actually have my own coach that, um, sort of does my like training schedule separately, um, who is based in Canada. Um, I've been working with her, I think for almost a year and this is sort of, yeah, I was looking to train more consistently and, uh, not be injured. So I wanted someone who actually knew what Mm. they were doing to, uh, to write my program for me. And so I set out and I was like, you know, I really, I really want a woman coach. Um, I've never had a woman coach over the course of my entire, I mean, unless you maybe count my mom as my first coach, but all throughout sort of high school, um, university, uh, graduate school, I've never had a woman as a coach. And I've been really lucky. I've had amazing, men as coaches who have really, really dedicated themselves to women's running and that mm. this isn't a shot at them at all. Uh, but I, I thought it would be fun and different to have a female coach. Um, sure. so I, I found her that way. I also wanted someone with a, a PT background. So her name is Bridget Pike. She's based out of Alberta. So, um, she does, she is my program now. Yeah. And she's been absolutely fantastic, but it, it is different. It's a different dynamic. Um, we met virtually, obviously, because of COVID um, for the first time. And, you know, she was like, yeah, we should talk about, okay, um, tracking your menstrual cycle so that we can think about how it aligns with your training. And it's just like, I, I can't imagine um, like, what? how that conversation would have yeah. gone like right off with um, with a male coach. So there have been different things. Um, and, and yeah, if I could see one thing in the sport, it would be a greater representation at the coaching level to help that trickle down effect. So it yeah. was like, got to practice what I preach. And, uh, and so now I have the best of both worlds where I have Tom
0: here and I have uh Bridget virtually. I love that. And I love that shout out to this change you want to see I, and, and a trickle down down change too, of, you know, it should affect all levels yeah. of the sport, but it's funny because I've, I've had a chance to talk to Tom and he would Deny adamantly that he had a large role in fighting for women's yep. equity in sports. I mean, he really mm-hmm. denies that. He's mm-hmm. like, you know, I've been painted as some some sort of hero, and it's really funny, kind of that way that he doesn't want any credit as a mm-hmm. white man. At least this is how I took it mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. women's yeah. Equity and I think sports. that's
1: part of yeah. being a good ally is that he has never centered himself in that narrative or that fight as being something that's about him or to his credit. And I mean, his, his wife was an incredibly talented runner as well. Um, but at a time period when the women's marathon didn't exist. So, you know, Tom went on and and ran the U S Olympic trials for the marathon and, and Janet, that, that opportunity wasn't available for her. So, I mean, he's lived it on a very intimate level, um, that way as well in, in how that lack of opportunity, impacts people. But uh yeah, he's also just a, a pretty humble yeah. guy. But
0: yeah. So Kayla, are you training for anything right now? I am. I'm running cross country now. Um Fun. for the fall.
1: Yeah. This is this is the final year of my district or my PhD. So um I'll be I'll be unaffiliated with a school as a student after this. So it's kind of my last opportunity to do that. Um and then my There are adult cross country leagues. Yes, exists. yes, yes. Less readily accessible, but yes, they do exist. Um, and then my family is one of those families that runs um, fun runs on holidays. So uh, we'll yes. be doing a 10 a, a miler on Boxing Day, which is the day after Christmas that Canadians uh, have their own celebration of. So we do that every year. There's a four miler and a 10 miler. Um, so I'll be doing that uh, over the Christmas break as well. So we'll kind of lead through cross
0: country into that amazing. All right. So before we wrap up cuz we are like I said sadly running out of time cuz there's so much more I want to <laughs> ask you about but I'm do mm-hmm. I'm going to do a few rapid fire questions if you're ready. Okay, okay. Yeah. So best thing about Oregon, worst thing about Oregon. Uh Best thing about Oregon is the weather. Worst thing about Oregon is the weather. Um,
1: It's like half of the year, the greatest place to live. Sunny, really moderate temperatures. The other half, it's pouring rain right now. Uh, You can probably even hear it through the podcast. Uh,
0: The other half of the year, it sucks. Favorite non-running hobby or activity? Um, I got really into knitting over the pandemic um, because I
1: am a person that can't sit still. So now I've made a bunch of sweaters and scarves and stuff.
0: Yeah. I love it. All right. If you could send a baked good to anyone in the world, what would you make? Who would you send it to? Ooh, that is an interesting question. Um, Thank you. I take full
1: credit for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm one of those unfortunate people that is like gluten-free and dairy-free. So I'd always send like those super expensive, like vegan and gluten-free, but really delicious brownies. And Honestly, this is going to sound so sappy. I'd probably send it to my full dissertation committee. They have done so much for me. And um, they're just like the coolest group of women scholars I could have ever asked for um, with completely different academic focuses and interests. And it's come together and they've just helped me so much. And I'm so grateful for them.
0: Are they all women? they're all women. Yeah. That's amazing. That's probably really rare. I would assume. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so my primary advisor, um, is actually, uh, on her way to Boston to run the Boston marathon. Um, so she's, she's, her focus is not actually running, um, or sport literature at all, but it just happened that she is quite a high level runner. So she took me on as her advisee, then, um, Courtney Cox, who I think you spoke with as well. Um, she works in uh, the ethnic to study, studies department at UO um, doing gender and race and sport. And then Elizabeth Wheeler is a disability studies scholar. Um, and then Lori Shant, who I think you also yeah. know um, through the UO School of J- Journalism. So they're my amazing committee. It's just like- What a freaking star power group. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Oh my
0: God. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But they've, they've done so much for me. That
0: is I'm so jealous. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. And also so happy for you. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. A book or movie that you would recommend right now? Okay. So I already said late air for like the Mm. running people.
1: Um, And if you're looking for just like a great novel, I um, really highly recommend uh, the passage series by Justin Cronin. Um, It like walks this fine line between like entertaining, um, genre read and like actual literature really well that I kind of love that fine line where I'm like, I don't have to use my brain too much, but it's also not total trash and I'm really entertained. Um, cool. so
0: yeah, I would highly Great suggestions. work. Yeah. Last question that I ask everyone is why mm-hmm. is sport a powerful platform for social change? I think
1: sport is a powerful platform for social change because, it impacts every single part of our lives. And that sounds ridiculous because it's sport, but it is where we go to learn about gender, to learn about race, to learn about sexuality. We are exposed to it from such a young age. It's how we learn about all of these different identities. Um, and also, we've celebritized and monetized sport to the nth degree now, where it has a lot of clout behind it. There's a lot of power behind these athletes and these platforms and these organizations. So we need to hold them accountable and to push them forward into more accessible and uh, and equitable spaces.
0: Oh man, Kayla, I loved this conversation. I love your brain and your research, and I can't wait to see more <laughs> of it. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, yeah, this was fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. As always, reach out to me and Kayla if this episode resonated with you. Social Sport is over on Instagram at Social Sport Pod. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at socialsport.substack.com. And the best thing you can do to support the show is to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also share Social Sport with your friends and families and followers. Okay, the announcement I teased at the top of the episode, we are taking a couple months off from recording and releasing episodes of Social Sport. This is the longest break I've taken since I started hosting the show in March of 2020. The past year and a half of hosting Social Sport has been an absolute honor, it has opened my mind, challenged me, and taught me more about the world around me than any other experience. It is still absurd to me that what started off as a little basement experiment now reaches hundreds of listeners from all over the world. But I'll be taking the next couple of months off to focus on other projects and to think and plan about the future of social sport and how I can make it the best show it can be. Thank you so much to all past guests, past sponsors, and most of all to the listeners for making this show possible. I'll see you in a couple of months. In the meantime, Stay sporty and keep resisting.